Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. My name is Brandon J. Fedor, and I'm your host. This week, I spoke to Jay Hillis Miller about his recent book, The Conflagration of Community, Fiction Before and After Auschwitz, put out by the University of Chicago Press. The book tackles a lot of issues, central of which is whether or not fiction can bear witness to the Holocaust. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will as well. Today I'm talking with Jay Hillis Miller about his new book, The Conflagration of Community, Fiction Before and After Auschwitz. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, If you could just first say a little bit about yourself, about your career, that would be great. Uh, Well, I was born in Newport News, Virginia, and my parents were both uh, from Virginia, were Virginians. Uh, children in both cases of farmers in Virginia, the first uh, generation that had gone, of both either family that had gone to college, so that's a part of American history. The uh, the uh, people who went to college in the early 20th century from families that had never gone to college before. Uh, but I grew up mostly in the, the north. Uh, uh, in upstate New York, my father was a uh, college and university administrator, first president of a little Baptist college called Cuca College in the uh, on Cuca Lake, one of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. And then he was associate commissioner for higher and professional education for the state of New York and Albany. And then he was president of the University of Florida. So I went to grade school actually in a one-room school, 20, 20 students for uh, six grades. One of the best teachers I had, uh, her name was Mrs. Ainsley. She was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And by the way, we shamelessly said the Lord's Prayer every morning. Nobody <laughs> worried about that in those in those days. Then I went to high school at, uh, from there by bus uh, to a place called Penyan, New York, and then to high school in Delmar, New York, which is where we lived when my father was in Albany. I went to Oberlin College, where I majored in English, uh, after having uh, started as a physics major. In the middle of my sophomore year, I decided I was really interested in literature. And I can still remember the way in which my science training was transferred to the study of Literature. I found the use of language in poetry and literature very peculiar. And the poem that I remember uh, connecting with that was Tennyson's, a famous short poem by Tennyson called Tears, Idle Tears. And it's, it goes, Tears, idle tears, I know not what they mean. Tears from the depth of some divine despair. Uh, gather in the heart and rise to the eyes and thinking of the days that are no more. And I thought that was really peculiar. What does he, what does he mean, <laughs> idle tears? And what does he mean that they rise from the depths of some divine despair, et cetera, et cetera? So I had a lot of questions which were 
uh, in a way, derived from my training as a scientist where you're supposed to explain things. Uh, and then I went to, uh, by the way, I got tremendous support from both my wife-to-be, Dorothy, and from my father in making this big career change from physics to English. Then I went to Harvard for graduate school, uh, where I wrote a dissertation under a Renaissance scholar named Douglas Bush. The dissertation was on Dickens, who uh, was one of the early fascinations in literature for me, so I stuck to my wish to write a dissertation on Dickens. I taught for a year at Williams College and then went for 19 wonderful years at Johns Hopkins. Uh, in the English department there in the days when people didn't worry so much about the future of literary study. Uh, that was from 1953 to 1972. In 1972, I moved to Yale, the English department there, where eventually I got a joint appointment in comparative literature. And it was there that I met the people that are associated with the so-called Yale School, the Yale Mafia, Harold Bloom and Jeffrey Hartman and Paul Denan and Derrida, who, Jacques Derrida, who came every year uh, to uh, give seminars as he'd come at Hopkins every third year. So I had known Derrida for a long time. We had a 40-year friendship. Wow. Uh, so my first year was, uh, first book was on Dickens, very different from the dissertation. The dissertation was uh, steeped in Kenneth Burke, and it was written in a way against the Harvard English Department ethos, you might say. They didn't care much for literary theory, so the theory that I was already doing was done <clears throat> clandestinely, you might say, or on my own. There were no courses in theory in those days. And it happened that my dissertation director, Bush, really detested Kenneth Burke. Uh, why? Well, the reason he gave was that Burke uses the editorial we. He says, now we will show. And uh, Bush didn't like that. The real reason was that he was a theorist. So I submitted this enormous dissertation, <clears throat> literally enormous, 800 pages or something, <laughs> uh, called The Symbolic Imagery of Charles Dickens. Uh, Bush read it over one weekend, well, claimed to have read it, and he had two comments. One, he, he said, I accept the dissertation. Secondly, he, he said, I suggest that sometimes you use that rather than which. <laughs> <laughs> that was the sum total of his <laughs> comment, and I've been trying ever since to, uh, I know the rule, this restrictive, non-restrictive, for which and that, but I don't quite know how to apply it. <laughs> so I, now I just don't use which, I always <laughs> use that. Um, and that, in general, uh, works. I mean, Bush was right, I, I used too many uh, witches. Bush must have somehow liked my work because he recommended me with one other person for the job at Hopkins, which was a wonderful assistant professorship. I was the first person, it's hard to believe, the first person in the English department at Hopkins uh, in the in 19th century literature. 
up until then, it sort of stopped with the Romantics. The assumption was that all gentlemen uh, had, uh, had read Victorian literature on their own. Uh, after I got to, uh, uh, then I, while I was still at Hopkins, I began writing the series of, of books uh, uh, that are uh, readings of the complete work of various uh, uh, authors, primarily poets. At that time, I was deeply under the influence of Georges Poulet, the so-called Geneva School of Consciousness, so I wanted to write long essays that gathered, that, that gathered together thematically thanks from all the work by a given author, George Emily Hopkins, let's say, or Emily Bronte, or Browning. So I'm one of the relatively few people who's read Browning from one end to the other, every poem he wrote, which is a lot of poems. Uh, then when I met Derrida and heard him at the famous uh, uh, Hopkins uh, conference on uh, structuralism in 1966, I began reading Derrida's uh, stuff. Uh, I changed and essentially went back to the interest in language that had been my concern at the beginning. When I moved to Yale, I went on working, writing more books, but books that were more in the direction of what's now often called a deconstruction, but often involving narrative theory and so on. So the Consecration of Community is the end of a long series of books, um, that, which really have as their center the attempt to account for literary works. I, I, I don't believe in the independent uh, value of literary uh, theory. Literary theory is useful only as a handmaiden to actually interpreting works of literature. I find theory fascinating, but 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 it's secondary to my interest in actual literary works, and that has remained uh, with me still. Uh, so that's a brief account of my uh, uh, career after I went to uh, Irvine, which occurred in 1986. I had more time. One of my reasons for going, uh, leaving uh, named professorship at Yale, where I'd been treated very well and where I had those wonderful colleagues and really wonderful students, uh, both graduate and undergraduate. The undergraduates at Yale are amazing, very gifted, and wonderful, wonderful to teach. That's really what I most missed when I went to Irvine, where I taught only graduate courses. But I had a little more time to finish some books that I'd started at Yale and had not yet quite uh, finished that were uh, why, because Yale really makes wonderfully attractive demands on you. If an undergraduate comes in and says, would you direct, do a directed reading for me this term? It's not only that you're supposed to say yes, but you want to say yes, because you know it will be 
um, interesting. For, for example, I remember one gifted student right at the end of my time at Yale who was a child actress from Wales who'd been sent to Yale to do her undergraduate work with the assumption that she would go back to uh, England and continue her career as an actress. What happened at Yale was that she got interested in literature, especially Thomas Hardy for some reason. Uh, so we used to have conversations about whether she, what she should do, and I told her she should do what she really, what her heart really told her to do, which was to give up acting and go to graduate school in uh, uh, in English. And she did do that. She went to Yale, and then she moved back to England and got her PhD at Cambridge. And she's now a glorious professor at the Royal Holloway College in London. It was that kind of person that you often met at uh, Yale. One of my uh, graduate students was someone you may have heard of, Eve Sedgwick. Who, mm, wow. Uh, and she was, she, I don't know why she asked me to direct her dissertation. She'd been in courses of mine, maybe because she knew I wouldn't give her any trouble. But what a, her, it was hard to predict from the work she was doing there that she would be one of the great inventors of queer theory, but she wrote a brilliant dissertation on, uh, which was published, uh, on the gothic novels. And she was so gifted a writer, the chapters would come in and I would say, thank you, Eve. I look forward to seeing the next chapter. I mean, I didn't do any directing, but uh, she is a, was a PhD of mine and a wonderfully nice person. Uh, and I could list a lot of other Yale PhDs that have had of mine that have had uh, uh, wonderful careers. Peter Sachs, for example, went to Hopkins and then to Harvard, where he's a professor. So the graduate students at Yale were also wonderful, fun mm. uh, to teach. Uh, I said that my my interest is in uh, interpreting works of literature. I should add uh, that. Uh, Another side of my vocation is for teaching. Um, I really have always loved to teach. Um, all of my books, including the uh, Conflagration of Community, have come out of teaching. I mean, I need the teaching in order to try things out. The substitute for that now is the lecturing that I do here and there around, around the world. I don't know until I tried it out on some audience whether some idea I have is going to fly or not. So uh, teaching and writing have always been uh, closely, very closely uh, related uh, for me. And that's why I, I uh, never, though I spent a lot of time in various ways doing administration. I was chair of the English department at Hopkins and then at Yale. And, Though so I made a deal at Irvine that I wasn't supposed to be an administrator there, I was chair of the department for uh, acting chair for a quarter while the actual chair was on on leave. But I never, uh, I never really uh, enjoyed that as much as teaching. It's important uh, that kind of departmental administration. But uh, for me, more more important is to teach and write, and the administration gets them a, 
gets in the way of that. <laughs> have to go to the office. <laughs> and I remember when I got to the end of my, uh, I think, three years at Yale as chair of the department. I was in California in the summer for the School of Criticism and Theory, and I went down to the beach at what I thought was midnight in uh, which would be the moment when July 1 came and I was no longer chair and threw my hat in the air. <laughs> Wonderful, I'm free. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'd forgotten the three-hour time shift. <laughs> so I still had another three hours. <laughs> Maybe I, no, I think it's the other way around. I'd already ceased three hours earlier <laughs> to, be, uh, to be chair. But I, uh, I immensely enjoyed my time at, at the University of California at Irvine, partly because it was a new place just organizing itself, partly because I, I did, it was a place where theory, unlike Yale uh, or Harvard, or indeed, uh, well, it was more institutionalized at Hopkins, but it's, it certainly wasn't at either at Yale. Um, at Irvine, it was there was a, there was the uh, School of Criticism and Theory was started there. There was a uh, undergrad, there was a graduate um, critical theory emphasis, which still exists, which I still go back once a year to give seminars in. Uh, so that this was Mary Krieger, a professor there, who wanted to have theory something that was normally taught in. Um, University, both undergraduate and graduate courses in literature departments. Now that would be commonplace, but at the time uh, Krieger started doing it, it was unusual. Now it's, so he's a great innovator, and I had wonderful colleagues in theory there, not only Derrida, but Wolfgang Eser and uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, and now more recently Ballet Barr. So there's been a long series of, uh, and Gayatri Spivak was teaching there uh, more or less after I uh, left or retired. Uh, and the, the graduate students at Irvine are very good. Uh, I, had a, I had great fun teaching them. Uh, and I was interested uh, uh, to go to California for t uh, two reasons. Um, well, several reasons. It was overdetermined. One of the reasons was that I knew I would have more time for my own writing if I went there than I had had at Yale. Uh, and secondly, I was, I think of California as, for better or for worse, the future of the United States, and I wanted to find out what it was like. And I mean specific things like that. Uh, the uh, multitude of languages that are spoken in in California, and now it's more commonplace in the United States, but it was the norm already, than mixture of different uh, races and ethnic uh, backgrounds. Uh, and I'd never taught in a public university. The University of California is probably the greatest, if you take the whole 10 campus uh, thing together, probably the greatest public university in the world, and it was interesting you know, measuring it by how many Nobel Prize winners they have, et cetera. And I was interested to see what it would be like 
to teach in such a place. Um, it's uh, one of the surprises I found at the University of California was that uh, you the, the, the different campuses really are related to one another. For example, I had a student from India, graduate student, who decided she wanted to do work that involved Sanskrit. Irvine didn't have any Sanskrit, so she went up to Berkeley, remaining a graduate student at Irvine, studied Sanskrit, and wrote a dissertation that I directed, but that had as one of the members of the committee somebody from Berkeley. And that's, that's easy to do in that system. Um, Derrida's yearly five weeks of seminars were attended by people from UCLA, Riverside, and San Diego. Um, so it was a sort of gathering of people interested in Derrida's work. And that surprised me, because I thought of the, the, those universities were probably going to be sort of segregated from one another. So that's my life story. Hmm. Well, you you mentioned oh, you wanted me to say something about other interests. If you'd like small, to, small boat sailing. <laughs> uh, I have here in Maine now my uh, eighteen and a half foot Cape Dory Typhoon, uh, which I sailed in last week, and I'm, well, I'm afraid that there isn't time this week. I try in the summer to go once go sailing once a week. I much enjoy camping. And, uh, and hiking. So I've climbed the Mount Katahdin, which is our highest mountain here. But that's a mere 5,000 feet. I say mere because in California, where I did some camping with my oldest daughter, you sort of park the car at 7,500 feet or 8,000 feet and go on up from there. But I've climbed Katahdin once with my son Matthew and uh, once with my daughter Robin and her daughter, so there were three generations of us on the top of Mount Katahdin. Hmm. Uh, so I was, uh, which is, it's a, it's a steep, rocky climb, not all that easy. I doubt now, at the age of 84, whether I would be able to make it. This is only five years ago, I think, that last climb, roughly. And I'm very proud of Robin who did the Appalachian Trail two or three years ago. Wow. 2,300 miles, starting sort of late. She finished Mount Katahdin as the north end of it uh, on uh, Labor Day, and I went up and picked her up, and she, I met her. I walked up the trail a little to meet her because I knew she was there on the summit and was coming down be picked up in the car, and she was actually running <laughs> down, <laughs> down the trail. So she's at this very moment doing a very demanding hike called the Colorado Trail, where you start somewhat outside Denver, and which is much of it is is at twelve thousand feet. She sent a, a photo of Kokomo Pass, which is twelve thousand feet, and that. That's not months and months and months. She finishes, it's about a month, doing 15, 20 miles a day, day after day after day. So she's inherent. She's a serious hiker. <laughs> okay, well, um, getting back to the book, you mentioned how it's sort of, uh, it kind of concludes a lot of your work over the past couple of decades. 
And I'm wondering if you could, you talk about in the, uh, the introduction about how the book is sort of a coming of ter- to terms for you. Yep. Um, and I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, elaborate on that, because in a lot of ways, I mean, the book is about the Holocaust, but I, it's very sort of rooted in the present day. You talk a lot about the Bush administration, um, right. Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib. Um, And I think there is a a real sense of urgency in your book. And I'm just wondering if maybe to start with, you could kind of describe your project um, in the book. Right. Well, the first thing to say is that I never would have done it if I had not been involved with a research group uh, uh, directed by my good friend Jakob Lothe, who's J-A-K-O-B-L-O-T-H-E at the University of Oslo, Notice the book is dedicated to him. Mm. Uh, he had research money over a two-year period and invited me to be part of a group that was a considerable number of them were from different Norwegian universities, but his co-directors were uh, James Phelan from Ohio State University, who's a narratologist, and Susan Suleiman from Harvard, who is a specialist on uh, uh, Holocaust uh, literature. Uh, so I had never dared to think about working on Holocaust literature. Uh, uh, I'd also not gone back uh, seriously to Kafka, though I read Kafka when I was a uh, graduate student or before. I was always fascinated by Kafka, but it's not exactly he's not exactly in my field. Uh, and the Toni Morrison uh, part was a result, uh, again, of a kind of accident that I sort of felt I should I should read that book because I was beginning to read uh, recent postmodern American fiction and European, uh, which was not is not in any way my field. So, like most of my books, it was a kind of accident. And the fact that I chose primarily Imre Kirtej as my uh, uh, example of a Holocaust novel is a result of my really naively asking uh, Phelan and and Lothar, and especially Suleiman, which Holocaust novel should I read? And they said, read Kirtej's Fatelessness. She's herself, if I'm not mistaken, originally uh, Hungarian. Uh, so that that ex- that explains the genesis of of the book. It doesn't exactly explain what happened when I started uh, writing it. It has a number of different motives or or threads. The first one would be to say that, uh, like all of my other books, the major thing I wanted to do was to figure out what's going on in those three. Kafka novels and the three, uh, four novels about the Shoah, with most attention on on the fatelessness on Kurtej, and in Beloved, I wanted to write essays about those novels in which I tried to account for them. So I'm still doing what I did right at the beginning when I shifted from physics. On the other hand, as in most of my books, there were some you might say some organizing themes, or you might even say theoretical issues that uh, come together in the, in this book, and I can 
name them. One is the question of community, communities of literature. What is a community? How would you know when you had one? What are the varieties of community? Is community always a good thing? Um, what are the what are the, the theories of community that, uh, that one would find when you started studying that? And I was uh, there's a lot of other unpublished stuff that talks about communities of literature in Conrad and uh, uh, Anthony Trollope and, and Pynchon and other authors that eventually will be published. So the first chapter of this book sets Jean-Luc Nancy against Wallace Stevens and with some Heidegger thrown in, trying to figure out just what uh, what there is to think or say about community. But in the course of that, I asked myself, what's What's happened to community? Is Deer Isle a community where so many of the people here all went to the same high school, uh, go to the same churches, and so on? Looks like an ideal community, but Deer Isle is also full of people, as they say, from away, <laughs> like me, who uh, were either summer people originally, or moved here, retired here, and so on. Um, uh, one measure of this would be to say that when my wife, who used to go to a slightly different part of Maine as a child, when she was a child, she said it took two weeks before she could understand anybody because the Maine accent was so strong. It's more or less disappeared. Why? Because everybody watches television uh, and listens to the radio, and it's gradually broken down that uh, community insularity. Um, so that first, that first chat. So that's one of the things that I keep coming back to. For example, in the chapter on Kafka's The Castle, or indeed in in the Fatelessness chapter, or the or the uh, Morrison Beloved chapter. So that that's a, a topic with a way of asking questions about these novels that would orient what I had to say about them. But then there's a, another uh, theme that uh, arose out of the work uh, on Holocaust novels that I did in collaboration with my... We used to have meetings there, and we actually had a meeting with Cortez in Berlin, a very interesting one, a really interesting guy, uh, which he answered questions. And I, I uh, refer to some of those questions uh, in, in the book once or twice. Um, but the question that seemed to me really important for the Holocaust novel section of the novel, of the book, is whether whether a work of fiction as a novel that is not, does not claim to be historically accurate, whether it can be valid testimony to the Holocaust and that's a serious question. Eli Wiesel says, it's one of my epigraphs, it's, it's either not a novel or it's not about Auschwitz. In other words, he denies the possibility of writing a work of fiction that is about Auschwitz or testimony uh, to Auschwitz. Uh, the, on the other hand, Cortez himself, when we asked him about this, said all works about the Holocaust 
are works of fiction. He didn't mean the Holocaust doesn't exist. He just meant that any account of it, even the most autobiographical, such as those by Carlo Levy or by Wiesel uh, by, uh, uh, himself, are a putting together. They're, they're making a story out of events, which uh, involve leaving some things out and putting some other things in. And there's no doubt that fatelessness bears a very close relation to Cortez's own experience uh, at uh, uh, Auschwitz and Buchenwald and Zeitz. It's not identical, but it's close to the experience that he had. So it's a kind of, now, the notion of testimony is another theoretical issue. One has to distinguish, and it's, a, for me, an important distinction that I learned from various seminars at Irvine where he talked about this topic. But testimony is not quite the same thing as factual history. Because testimony always involves some kind of speech act. It involves, it involves me saying, I swear this is what I saw. So in a court of, court of law where you're called as a witness, you say, this is what I saw. I swear this is what I saw. And you might be mistaken. What's not in question is the fact that you've sworn that, that you're telling the truth about what you saw. So you have distinguished, and you, you might have seen things wrongly. You might be entirely honest in your testimony, but you might have made a mistake in what, what you said. So the jury in a court case doesn't have to say, uh, this was the truth. It just means they just have to decide beyond the shadow of a doubt that the testimony that they've heard is uh, true. Uh, so that's uh, the, uh, you can't, you can't uh, not take that into account when you ask the question about whether novels can be valid testimony to Auschwitz. And I want to claim that it can be valid uh, testimony. And I have some help for that from people like Monsi, there's a little, essay by Nancy about uh, representation who claims this this is the case but it's still controversial you, it's not implausible for somebody to say well if it's a work of fiction it will fall into the hands of the Holocaust deniers who say it's just all a work of fiction anyway the Holocaust didn't really happen or it will if it's a work of fiction it will, in some, it will in some way be invented, not true uh, to what happened. And this is related to the general question of whether it's possible to represent the Holocaust in any way. Uh, there are people who say it was so uh, unspeakable, so awful, that there's no way to talk about it at all. Uh, 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 it, it was unspeakable in, in a kind of... Uh, I'd say sacred way. I think that's dangerous because my view is that the most important thing is to get all the information we can and not to forget about it. The danger is that we would just put it out of our minds, um, particularly for people in the United States who were in a way so distant from it. 
I can remember still, I'm old enough to remember how surprised I was and everybody else was when they, uh, the Allies liberated the concentration camps. And there were a lot of horrible pictures of corpses and of people almost at the, at the dead of starvation in Life magazine. And my memory is I was in my teens at that point. Uh, my memory is that this was really the first time that it sort of come through to me that this was going on uh, in Germany and Poland and, and Czechoslovakia and so on. So that issue is one of the ones that I try to confront, and I think it's a very difficult question whether fiction can tes testify to Auschwitz. Uh, 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 or to slavery in the Morrison novel, or in the case of uh, Kafka's novels, whether fiction can testify to what it was like in Prague, where he grew up to grow up as a, a Jew on the edge of the uh, rise of, of Nazism. Um, because there's no doubt that Kafka's great novels are works of fiction, but they bear some relation to what the pre-Nazi Czechoslovakia bureaucracy and anti-Semitism uh, were like. Uh, so they're great novels from that point of view. The, the final issue that concerns me in the book that was in my mind, and I talk about all of these things, as you know, if you've read the book, is the uh, resonances among these various forms of literature. Uh, Kafka, uh, writing in the period in the teens and uh, early 20s of the 20th century in Prague and Czechoslovakia, uh, 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 the Holocaust novels, which are written after uh, Auschwitz, and our, our attempts to come to terms with it, whether it's uh, Spiegelman's wonderful mouse book, comic comics book, or Nick Ewan's Black Dogs, or Schindler's, Schindler's List, uh, Keneally, by the way, is a friend of mine. He was a colleague at Irvine, and uh, I owe him a lot. I'm a hat fetishist, and Keneally was an Australian and went back to Australia. He left Irvine to go back to support the free Australia movement. Uh, Keneally came back from Australia one time with, with a wonderful Cuba Australian sort of cowboy hat, which I greatly valued, carried it on the airplane. It was a wonderful gift. Uh, so uh, so my, my question is, what happens, this is sort of a third question that was in my mind, what happens when you set these, when you set Kafka's novels next to the Holocaust novels next to Morrison's Beloved? Uh, how are they in resonance? or help you understand uh, re recent European and American history. And that that's the part of it that I was very careful in what I said, but it is a part that makes me 
though still a little uncomfortable, claiming kind of resonance among these that somehow American slavery was like the Holocaust. That was like what it would have been like to live in Prague before the rise of the Nazis. And I carefully say they are not identical. They're very different. There's nothing like the Holocaust. And Holocaust specialists make a big point of saying that, but you can't say it's like any other um, uh, mass killing. A, what's specific about it is it's the first great genocide that was uh, total. I mean, the Germans wanted to kill every last Jew within their control. And secondly, it was a result of, for the first time, of bureaucratic efficiency uh, and the use of modern technology in, in the uh, uh, crematoria and in the gas, uh, gas chambers. And that's that's special. Even more recent genocides like that in Rwanda or other places are not really quite like the um, German one. The fact that the German one was perpetrated by citizens of a country that was the or country or a German-speaking area generally, including Austria and other places where German was the main language, the place that not only Kafka came from, who was a great German writer from Czechoslovakia, but uh, you know, think of it, Beethoven, Wittgenstein, Kant, uh, Hegel, one of the great glories of Western civilization. If I really had to choose between the importance of German Romanticism, including poets like Hobelin, and very not great philosophers like Kant, Hegel, and Fichte, and so on, as against even English Romanticism, Coleridge, and Wordsworth, and, and uh, Keats, and Shelley, and so on. I'm afraid I would have to say the German one is more important than relatively few Americans. That's not to take anything away from Keats and Shelley, but uh, that's a very great high watermark of Western civilization. And that's the place where the Holocaust took place. So that's something you really take some thinking about to take advantage of. So I have, since I wrote this book, I have a, a term in a, that I've invented, which would be the term anachronistic reading. I was brought up to believe that if you wanted to understand Kafka, the way to do that would be to place him as fully and completely as you could back in the culture that he came from, namely Prague and Berlin and other cities where he also lived, but primarily Prague and Czechoslovakia in the early uh, uh, 20th century. Uh, just as to understand Shakespeare, you have to learn the Elizabethan frame of mind. And as against that, with all respect for the idea you should know as much as possible about the historical context of an author you're studying, but there's a part of me that's saying, why should I now, in 2012, care all that much about Prague 
1915. I want to know why it's important for me now to read Kafka, uh, why it will be useful for me and helpful to me. I'm not ashamed of saying that that ought to be, that ought to be the question, just as you might say a fourth or fifth, I've lost track now of my concerns in this book, is the question of the use, use of reading literature at all in these days. You mentioned the references to Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay and the Bush administration and so on. So it's already dated. It's more or less 2010. A lot of, a lot of uh, changes have taken place since then. But I, I think it's a mistake to say that we should just use the historical imagination. We, I think the real question is why read literature, and in particular works of literature, now? And one of the ways that functions in the book is the claim I make that Kafka's work, without Kafka exactly being aware of it, is a, amazingly a kind of prophecy of the Holocaust. Uh, not only the conditions under which Jews were going to live under Nazism, which was already foreshadowed in Prague in, uh, in the decades before, uh, uh, before the uh, Nazis and the Second World War, uh, uh, but uh, 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 also uh, in, in the specific way, which I found quite amazing, in which the least well-known and talked about, written about, of Kafka's great novels, the one that's normally called America, though his name for it was Der Verschollene, which means the disappeared one, which is about a young man who's got a serving maid pregnant and has been sent by his family to the United States, to America, uh, to find a job. He has an uncle here, like so many uh, immigrants into the United States. He's supposed to find a job and a place for himself and so on. The novel ends with an amazing uh, sequence in which uh, the hero, uh, Carl Rossmann, uh, sees uh, posters on the sidewalk promising jobs in Oklahoma. Uh, and is led to go to the place where he's uh, given a job, sent by train, the novel, none of these three novels is finished. The latest fragment has it on the train on the way uh, to Oklahoma. And what's really chilling about this is its close correspondence to what it was actually like, let's say, for uh, uh, Ibrahim Kurtej uh, in Hungary when the Nazis who occupied the place and the local soldiers and police who were collaborating with them promised Hungarian Jews a job, a nice place to live, and so on, and enticed them to get on the trains that were taking them straight to Auschwitz. So this would be a way in which it's, it's impossible now to read Kafka's America without thinking of a very strange way. It's strange because how did Kafka know in which it uh, anticipates what was actually going to happen historically in Prague 
and other uh, parts of, uh, of the Nazi Empire. Um, and that's indeed there are uh, there are films of the Jews sort of hurrying, being hurried through the streets to the train, and they were promised that they would be a job and a place, place to live. They could take their families and so on. And it seems crazy now, but many of them apparently didn't know until the last moment that they were about to be killed. There are some very moving photographs, which I mentioned. The families, because the, the gas chambers were full, they had to wait in the woods for a while before they could actually be killed, and they looked perfectly relaxed and normal because they still think things are going to be just dandy. And that's what's promised to Carl Osman uh, in the, what is Kafka's editor and friend, Max Broad, called the nature theater of Oklahoma. Kafka never used that term. So that idea of anachronistic reading, where you read a work in the light of history that came afterwards, is a, another important you know, question. It's not an answer. It's just a way of asking myself, what happens if you say, uh, well, I'll read these novels uh, in the light of my own situation now? And that explains or justifies the references to Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay and so on. The other thing that justifies it, if you can say it's a justification, is what you began by saying that it does mark a real change in my own uh, personal uh, attitude where I, I began to be anxious enough about what's going on in the United States to feel that I shouldn't just stand on the sidelines, but that I should ask myself how reading literature might help us to come uh, come to terms with that. And I, since finishing this book, I've written a bit more uh, along those along those lines. Hmm. So, well, um, going back to Kafka for for just a moment, obviously his work. Uh, was really important to you in this book. You spent quite a bit of time talking about Kafka um, and the trial, the castle. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I found it really fascinating, and you, you touch on this a little bit, about how Kafka's writing was proleptic in a way, um, yep. predicted the Holocaust. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. I, I got chills uh, down my spine reading some of the, the sections in your book about how Kafka, you almost got the sense that Kafka had the feeling that his his work would become performative, would would act out the Holocaust that's, if that's he had really, finished reading yeah. or writing. Yes, I, I, I know, and I do uh, try to uh, talk about that. It's one explanation for why Kafka wanted Max Brod to destroy all his manuscripts. Uh, it was as if Kafka had what I, you know, you'd think of as a kind of superstitious fear that the the things that he was writing about in his novels and stories would actually come true uh, so that they had a kind of prophetic power to bring about the thing they talked about, or one could say a speech act power, a performative power, mm -hmm. um, so that uh, it's, hard, it's hard to know why he wanted the works destroyed. But, the, but there's some things he said that uh, sound a little bit 
like that's what he what he feared, so that he had the feeling it's a think of it here was this very great writer. I mean those novels and the stories are are fantastic works of genius who thought that these works were dangerous and that they not be, not because they were untrue but because just because they might come true. Therefore he he very strictly enjoined uh, uh, Broad, who was a good friend of his, to destroy them all, destroy all the manuscripts. Uh, luckily for the world, I think, Broad didn't do that. Um, and so when, when I read that uh, sort of uh, there are other Kafka scholars who've talked about this aspect of um, Kafka's attitude toward his own writing, uh, I began to ask myself, well, what is it in his work that might that might have seemed prophetic in that way. And though that's easier to see for the uh, America, for the disappeared one, uh, that's very ominous. What he really wanted to call it was the disappeared one, which would suggest that when Carl Rossmann gets on that train, the very end of the, of the, of the uh, disappeared one is a really magical description of, of Carl Rossman. He's on the train with the other people, as they think, on the way to the Nature Theater of Oklahoma, where they'll have a job and a, and a, a home, and where everything will be just wonderful. Uh, it's a description of the mountains, completely imaginary. Kafka didn't know very much about the United States. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, waterfalls right outside the window in the mountains. And the only time I've ever experienced that myself was the first time I went to Switzerland. I was in Italy and took the train over the Alps into Switzerland. And indeed, you looked out the window, and there were these waterfalls right by in the middle of the mountains, coming down the side of the rocks and so on. So that passage at the end of the of the disappeared one, but it suggests that he's going to disappear. Why else did he call it call it that? Because while he's still in New York, he hasn't hasn't disappeared. But the other two novels, in different ways, can be taken as descriptions of what it was like, what it was going to be like under the Nazi uh, rule. Uh, the the trial, as everybody knows, is about someone who is arrested one fine day. Uh, that's the first sentence, though he hadn't done anything really wrong at Vassbursa. Uh, and who then spends all his time, more and more of his time, trying to prove his innocence. Uh, and is eventually executed uh, in a very haphazard uh, kind of way. Um, that's the sort of thing that happened in, in Germany, and I'm sorry to say sometimes happens in the United States. As we know, there have been some people falsely arrested, um, and uh, given what, what we call extraordinary rendition, sent to somewhere in Europe where they're tortured, and eventually, after two, at a prison, <clears throat> and eventually, after several years, 
simply dropped by the roadside somewhere where they decided that they really were not guilty of anything after all. So it's not that the events in the, in the trial couldn't possibly um, happen here. Uh, and that makes me very anxious, uh, the fact that, that it's not legal to arrest and hold without uh, trial American citizens, not just uh, uh, presumed uh, uh, terrorists from another from another country. The suspension of habeas corpus, which is a very important uh, part of our uh, uh, freedom, which means the requirement that you can arrest anybody, uh, but you have to bring them to trial in a reasonable time. That's what habeas corpus means. And to abrogate that is very dangerous, I think. Um, and the, the trial shows you what such a situation uh, would be like. And the, and the, the castle is uh, uh, equally powerful in some ways, the most finished of the lot. In the case of the trial, as you know, if you've read that section of my book, uh, it's unfinished in the sense that there are an endless series of chapters and chapter fragments that uh, show uh, Joseph K. trying to deal with his situation of being arrested, but not really arrested, uh, arrested, but being allowed not to be in prison, allowed to fight his, uh, his own legal battle. Then the whole thing that he did, in that case, he wrote the ending of the novel, which is the execution of Joseph K., but not the chapters in between. So that execution would apparently be at the end of a, who knows how, how many months more of chapters like the ones that we do have. In the case of the castle, it's, again, a very haunting story of someone who comes into a village at nightfall and with, with the claim that he has a job there as a land surveyor. And in this case, he spends the entire novel, episode after episode, trying to get, get hold of the authorities in the castle to uh, uh, acknowledge that he has been hired. And, so it's a novel about the relationship between one's sense of selfhood and having a job. And in, in, again, in our country today, there are so many people without jobs that it's hard, and it's hard to imagine if you've not been in that situation of being uh, unemployed or un, uh, underemployed, how closely related that is to your own sense of your value and identity as a person. It's easy to say, what good am I? Who am I? How am I anybody if I'm not valuable enough to have a job? And uh, we now have eight, at least 8.3% of our population is actually much higher higher than that who don't, don't have jobs. And I know this from my own family experience because our son Matthew who lives on the island of Kauai has uh, been at various times. He's a school teacher. He still has one of those part-time 
uh, jobs, which depends from year to year and how many classes there are. It's very insecure. And I've seen how difficult uh, that is uh, for him. So the castle helps understand that. There's another aspect of the castle, which uh, if you've read the chapter, you'll know was important for me. And that is the way in which so much of what happens to the hero has, has to do with the interpretation of documents. It's a novel really about bureaucracy. Uh, and the, the difficulty, and indeed possibility, of getting uh, documents, letters, etc., being sure that you've understood them uh, correctly. And it's certainly true that in any large organized country like the United States now, a lot of time is spent worrying about documents, filling out income taxes, uh, census forms, uh, uh, all the rest of it. I've just been doing a visa application for another visit to China that I'm supposed to make in, in uh, September. And I've discovered that they've changed the rules and they're now very complicated requirements for the letter of invitation that they have to write, which has, has all sorts of information, including in the letter of invit invitation, not only my name, but my age, birth date, and gender. Now, we hereby invite J. Lewis Miller, born March 5, 1928, male, uh, uh, which seems very strange because elsewhere in the documents that I send, there's all sorts of information about who I am. So I've been confronting for the last couple of days the uh, difficulty of interpreting documents. The other topic that really interests me in the book as a whole and is a important part of the chapter on the castle is the, the question of the relation to communi of community, belonging to a community or not belonging to a community, to uh, understanding other people. Uh, and that comes up, uh, the, the question of what Kafka called Bitsign, being with other people in the first theoretical chapter, but I think it's a practical question in the castle, where the fact that, uh, that the hero does not belong to a community, and uh, the fact that there really isn't a community because it's so hierarchical. There's the castle up there on the top of the hill with all of these mysterious officials, and then there are the people in the village, and they don't, it doesn't really form a unified uh, community such as one would like to have. And at, at that point, I thought of Williams, Raymond Williams's work on community, in which he very powerfully claims that uh, the, the, the little towns on the Welsh border, such as he grew up in, were a real community because everybody knew everybody, and that this community was uh, jeopardized, and indeed in the end destroyed, by removing in of people from the outside who built big houses there, became squires who were usually English, and even, according to him, by the Church of England, which was the established church in England and would be quite different from the little uh, 
Baptist churches that these people went to. And that sort of stuck in my mind as corresponding to the situation in the castle. And in any case, it's a kind of, when you ask yourself the question, it's a kind of rule in the castle that people don't uh, don't have insight into what sort of spontaneous insight into what the other person is thinking. That the lack of community means a difficulty or even failure in understanding other people, uh, and that's uh, that's a, 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 that's an anxious making situation. So interpretation means not just interpretation of all those documents like the ones that fill up the offices of one of the uh of the officers of the castle the Kafka hero and Connors, but also the question of interpreting other people. What do their facial expressions mean? What do they really mean by what they say, uh, etc. What's in general called intersubjectivity. And modern literature, beginning with Kafka and such people, even Virginia Woolf um, or Conrad, differs from Victorian fiction in the increasing difficulty that people in modern and postmodern literature have in getting right what the other person is thinking. Whereas in Trollope's novels, one reason I admire Trollope's novels and enjoy reading them so much. Trollope's novels presuppose that everybody in the novel belongs to the same culture. Uh, for example, in the Barset novels, belong to a village, small town that has a cathedral. Many of the people in the town are um, some form of minister for the cathedral. And they, they all know what the other person is thinking. Trollope is quite specific about that. Uh, there's a kind of transparency uh, among the people uh, from one consciousness to another. The idea that it's difficult to understand other people is not uh, new in the 20th century, however. If you think about the novels of Jane Austen or George Eliot, um, they are about uh, young women who are very intelligent and sensitive sympathetic, that's a big word for George Eliot, but who nevertheless make huge mistakes about other people, especially the people that they uh, choose to marry, or uh, uh, in the case of Pride and Prejudice, in the end, happily marry. But the her Elizabeth Bennet's prejudice is against Darcy. She thinks he's a terrible man, and in the end, she, just, she was wrong. So she doesn't have transparent insight to what he's like. Um, and Dorothea in George Eliot's Middlemarch makes a huge mistake about Kasaman, whom she marries. She's, she thinks he's like he's like Pascal or uh, uh, other great 17th century uh, writers. Uh, Milton, but marrying him would be like marrying Milton before his blindness came on, and this is shown to be a big mistake, because Alvin is not like those people. The whole novel is about uh, the question of how she escapes from this uh, 
radical mistake about other people. So that whole question of how well we understand other people and how that's related to whether we live together in a community is an important theme in this book uh, for me. I found that really interesting, and I think that uh, you quote, I think it's Derrida who said, there are no worlds, there are only islands. Right. And I yeah. thought that was so eloquent. I, I don't know, like at the end of the book, I mean, you tackle these, these huge themes, but I feel like there's something really sort of personal and yeah. and almost in a way kind of sad, that, that issue about knowing others. Um That's and right. the limitations that we have in knowing the other, like you talk about Austin, J.L. Austin. Yes. And I was reminded of his essay, Knowing Others, I'm not sure, in the philosophical yes. papers. Yes. Um, and I thought that there was a huge connection. I mean, obviously talk about how to do things with words, but uh, that whole issue of knowing others, I just thought was really fascinating, especially when you think about it in terms of these events like the Holocaust. and. Um, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's very astute of you because as, as it's not an obvious theme in uh, how to do things with words, but the essay you refer to is part of a whole string of essays written in, by the Oxford people, common language people, that was precisely on that question, how do we know an, another person? Mm -hmm. uh, so that it's not unrelated to Austin's idea, which is crucial for me, and does get into this book at least indirectly, because I've written a whole book called Speech Acts and Literature, which is about just about that question. But Austin implicitly for a speech act, a promise, uh, uh, or a warning, or any of the other standard uh, speech acts, for it to be what he called felicitous, for it really to work, you have to have a whole set of institutions and you have to have, at least implicitly, the, the fact that people understand one another. So that when I say, uh, yeah, I promise to uh, be ready at 4 o'clock on Friday to participate in this interview, you have to know what I mean by that, and we have to trust one another enough so that I really do fulfill my promise. So that uh, Austin is right, I think that the uh, that felicitous is a marvelous word for this. That a felicitous speech act depends on a common set of assumptions that at least implicitly uh, suggests that we understand one another. But another of Austin's essays, which I found typically very funny and powerful, is the one about how you know whether another person is angry. <laughs> uh, and the uh, the first couple of pages of that, that essay, he's answering somebody who's one of the people in that common language school who's raised this question, which is one of the questions that you uh, referred to a few minutes ago. And for it's a big question. How do I know what the other person is feeling? How do I know? Is it just when he says I'm angry, I'm angry, or she? Is that enough? Not, not necessarily. You might say, I'm really very angry and, and not really mean it. And so it's the difficulty of intuiting what the other person's emotions are in that case. And, and Austin, uh, typically, he's 
it was very, for me, Austin's one of my great heroes. He was so smart and so funny. He says, well, does somebody have to, for example, uh, bite the rug? <laughs> I, say, I say, I'm really angry. I'm angry enough to bite the rug. Chew <laughs> <laughs> the edge of the rug. And then you say, I know he's really angry because he, he bit a hole out of the rug. Uh, so the question is, what sort of external manifestations are there? Uh, and it, indeed, for me, to get back for a moment to uh, Derrida, for me that is a, a a big problem, to try to imagine what it would feel like to be somebody else, and whether the emotions that I feel when I say I'm happy or angry or anxious are at all like the emotions that somebody else feels when they say the same thing. And the problem is, it's a philosophical problem, not only in the Oxford people, but also in one phenomenology, is that you have no direct, direct access. That's why there's a lot of work recently in cognitive science where people try to put electrodes and try to find out what goes on in the brain when somebody is angry or anxious or elated or, or, um, or whatever. So that passage in Derrida, which is, for me is a very powerful passage and was in the last seminar that he wrote, uh, which he did not live to give it Irvine. Uh, I used to attend his seminars every year, and after he started using the computer, at first I would ask Derrida when I couldn't attend one of his seminars because I was away lecturing or something, could I please have a copy of the lecture that I missed because he wrote his seminars all down. And then along about 1991 or two or something, starting he was using the computer, he would give me, at the end of the seminars, the, the disc. So I have a bunch of those discs of the seminars. Oh, wow. Any that are not, uh, not published. Uh, but the last time I saw him, he was had to break off the seminars and go back, back to Paris, I think because he was aware that there was something really serious wrong with him. Hmm was the pancreatic cancer that killed him a couple of years later. Uh, uh, he gave me the seminars that he'd only begun giving, which are the Beast and the Sovereign Two, And it's about Heidegger. It's always Heidegger. Uh, and uh, Defoe, Robinson Crusoe. And it's apropos of Robinson Crusoe and Robinson Crusoe's Island, but suddenly in the middle of that, one of those seminars, you get that passage that uh, I quote, which is a kind of uh, very intransigent uh, re refusal to believe that there's any way you can know what the other person is thinking, and a kind of commitment on Derrida's part at the very end of his life to a kind of uh, solitude, as, as like Robinson Crusoe's on his island with no connection, no isthmus, no transfer, no bridge, no connection to another consciousness. It's a very powerful and uh, uh, a, a, a passage that I 
would like to be able just to reject. Gee, it can't be all that bad. (laughs) (laughs) We can't be that isolated. (laughs) So I'm uh, my hero is uh, Alfred E. Newman, the Mad Magazine hero. <laughs> but what we we worry <laughs> here, and it's true. There's a kind of cheerfulness that I have that makes me better able than some other people might be to deal with things that are difficult, like Kafka's novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my world is something like Kafka's novels, but not really. <laughs> so that makes me more, and not really like Derrida's life either. Derrida really did have reason reasons to be uh, aware of his uh, solitude as a North African Jew, an outsider who was trying to make his way in the. Uh, in the French intellectual system, who was chosen to be a professor by the great Paul Ricoeur. Ricoeur wanted him to be his Ricoeur's successor as the professor of one of the branches of the University of Paris. And there was so much hostility to this that they they got around this by abolishing the chair. So Derrida was never a professor in France. Think of that. Wow. Uh, he was a uh, Maître de Conférence, de Conférence at the École uh, des Hautes Études, um, and he taught for years and years at the École Normale. So it wasn't that he had a position, but it would be technically uh, a much lower position than to be a professor. So that he suffered not only during the uh, Nazi period when in North Africa he was thrown out of the school that he went to because he was Jewish, uh, but also later on in the, uh, in the hostility uh, to him in the French system. Not that they were not uh, good to him, he did get into the Ecole Normale, which is the elite sort of high, it would correspond in the United States to sort of the last two years of high school and the first two years of college is sort of halfway between a college and a, and a, a high school. Uh, he got into the important one where all the great French intellectuals uh, went, and he did very well there. Uh, he tells a story about and his, his work was recognized at the admired in, in France, but he tells a story about his great teacher, Jean Hippolyte, who was also, by the way, at the at, uh, uh, Hopkins conference. Uh, Hippolyte, who would have been his know, director of studies, whatever you would call that, who said to him, Jacques, uh, I'm not quite sure where your, your work is going. And Derrida answered, i I don't know either. If I knew already, I wouldn't want to go there. <laughs> so there was a there was a genuine degree of improvisation in Derrida's work, but there would be a lot more to say about Derrida. Anders <laughs> obliquely into this book. 
Well, Dr. Miller, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, as a way to sort of conclude, I was wondering if maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about any projects you're currently working on. Yes. Uh, well, since I published this book, I've published two other uh, books. Uh, one of them, a book about George Eliot, uh, primarily but not exclusively about Middlemarch. And it brings up some of the same issues that we've been talking about. There's a section on Eliot's Adam Bede. But that shows my, that, that little book, which was published quite recently by Edinburgh Press, shows my continued allegiance to uh, uh, Victorian literature, which is what I originally was. And the other book is written with uh, Tom Collin and Claire Colebrook. Um, Tom Collin was a, a student at Yale who I've known forever and ever really a student of Paul Demand's, but after Demand's death, I had, uh, had finished directing the dissertation. Uh, uh, and this is a book uh, called Theory in the Disappearing Future, which is really about the state of theory and the usefulness of theory, primarily literary theory. And in the case of this little book, it's again a small book. Uh, Paul Demand's work. So this is a, a, a book about uh, Paul Demand, and in particular about the essay by Demand written right at the end of his life on uh, Walter Benjamin's The Task of the Translator. It was an, not an essay that he really published, but gave as a lecture uh, twice. Wonderful lecture, wonderfully challenging lecture, reading of Benjamin's essay on the Aufgabetus, Ubersetzers, the task of the translator. It was given at Yale at the Whitney Humanities Center, and I heard that version of it. And then it was given at Cornell, where it was taped, and the published version of the essay comes from the tape made, made at the Cornell version. So, uh, uh, I thought it was a wonderful uh, lecture that he gave at Yale, uh, in spite of the fact that there was a, the man had a great gift for sending people up the wall, making them very anxious. That certainly happened with this lecture because there were people there who had the best of interest in a quite different way of reading the Walter Benjamin, um, who protested. Uh, uh, against the lecture, and the same thing happened again at Cornell, where the people didn't just say, oh, this is wonderful. So I thought uh, 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 in the spring, or maybe the summer, he died the next December of 1983, this would have been. I used to visit the man at his house once a week and uh, to see how he was doing, and they would give me a glass of sherry, and Paul and I would talk and so on. I said, I wonder if you could give me the manuscript of that lecture about Benjamin. And he said, I don't have a, a, a manuscript. I never wrote it out. All I have is a, some notes in a notebook. He said, you could probably reconstruct the essay from those notes. So he gave me that notebook, which has, well, the two versions of the notes, uh, one of them long one, which nobody's ever done anything with. It's about 11 pages. So, but it's not, it's not a written out uh, seminar. And that, in that way, 
of Devan and Derrida were very different. Derrida always had his seminars completely written out in French. Uh, Devan never did. All he had was a few little quotations and a few little ideas, and he would give a two-hour seminar completely improvised uh, on the basis of these notes. These notes are a little fuller for the enemy uh, lecture. So our little book is a, a, has a transcript of those 11 pages of notes and essays by the three of us trying to worry not just about the man, but about the theory of these days. <laughs> mm. So that's the second book. And then there are other things that would be too a long, long story to uh, uh, tell. One of the various things that I've had to write recently, I've, I've, uh, I've written, when I go to China, people want me to write lectures on subjects like, uh, or China, or often from friends here and there who write, want me to write something for an issue of a magazine. It's on subjects like, does literature matter? Why read literature? <laughs> I had a bunch of those, and I'm planning a book with a colleague whom I've never met, but who I've contributed to special issues of magazines that he does. A professor at North Bengal University called Ranjan Ghosh, J-G-H-O-S-H. And we're planning a collaborative book in which uh, I'll have three essays, including the, the one about what does literature matter, and one about a uh, serious question these days about uh, uh, globalization of literature study and uh, the world the development of the discipline of world literature, uh, which I've attended conferences, one in Shanghai not long ago, and paper, but you know, what about world literature? Well, in a way, I prefer to write about particular works of literature. For example, I have written recently something about uh, McEwan's Atonement and the film, and that, in a way, interests me more. So my real interest still is in works of literature, and I've always made a little uncomfortable by people saying, we don't want you to talk about a particular work of literature, nobody will read it. Tell us about what you think about the future of literary <laughs> study. <laughs> so, so that's the little battle that I'm fighting. Uh, but I, uh, I've written recently something that I did enjoy writing, which was for the, there's a magazine called Glossator, which is committed to glosses. Uh, and, and that, and there's an issue in, people, in which people are supposed to write something glossing some part of Derrida's the postcard. So I have written, I said, well, okay, I'll do this. And uh, because the, the first part of the postcard, the moi, part strikes me as, among other things, uh, a brilliant postmodern novel. It really is a novel, a novel in letters. So I found, found a lot to say about that, and that was done this summer. Um, it's particularly interesting because, on the one hand, it's a work of fiction, very mysterious, 
know who he's writing to or who who the person writing the letters is, et cetera. It's entirely up to letters. On the other hand, there are a lot of things in there which I know to be factual because they involve me. There are four places where I appear in that in that book. One of them is a he says uh, Hillis uh, took me sailing in Long Island Sound the other day, and indeed I did take Derrida sailing in my those days I kept the typhoon frippery in uh, Brantford Harbor near New Haven. What Derrida didn't know was that the small craft warnings were up. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't really blowing a gale, but technically there was a, a little too much wind. Nothing happened. It was perfectly safe. But I didn't say, I didn't say, Jacques, I'm not sure we should be out today. <laughs> All craft warnings are up. And another episode that he mentions was I was teaching in Zurich, and Derrida came to give a lecture in Zurich. And we he was working on the postcard, and particularly the envoi part, which has to do. He was fascinated by changes in te- modes of telecommunication uh, over the centuries. For example. The, trying to imagine what psychoanalysis would have been if it hadn't been developed at a time when you had to write letters and send them and use the telephone. So the technological devices available were the telephone and the postal service. So he says, what what would psychoanalysis have been like if Freud and his colleagues had had email and MCI now we would say iPads and <laughs> iPhones and, <laughs> and Skype. <laughs> uh, but he was writing before that those things were really available. Uh, at any rate, he came uh, to uh, Zurich, and we went together up to the zoo cemetery near the zoo up on the top of the hill. There were to visit the grave of James Joyce for both of us have some piety. The influence on Derrida's work of Hennigan's Wake is considerable. So we went way in the back of the seminar, uh, cemetery. I knew where it was, and there was this little statue, a very charming sort of half-sized statue of Joyce with his cane. And uh, if I remember correctly, a cigarette in his hand. It's all looking very Joycean. So we paid our respects to that. But when we came back down through a slightly different route to get, we were looking for the tomb of a professor that we both knew who killed himself, Peter Zondi. And I know he's there because I'd seen the the tomb, but we couldn't find it. What we did find was the tomb of somebody named Egon Zoller, a very Swiss name, who was I'll translate it, but the German is very good. Das Gefinder des Telefonographen, which, as far as I could tell, that the the inventor uh, of the ticker tape, because on his tomb was carved a ticker tape machine with ticker tape going across from Alpha to Omega, and buried off of this was absolutely amazing. However, he's interested in modes of communication at this point. And we stood for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes in front of the tomb of Egon Zoller. 
so and that's in the postcard, and it really did happen. So on the one hand, it's sort of like my Holocaust novels. It's a work of fiction. On the other hand, it has some things in it which are which really happened, uh, and that I know happened, or at any rate, I can testify. I give my testimony. <laughs> I, I swear this really happened. So that's what I'm doing these days. Okay, well, Dr. Miller, it's been really, really great talking to you, um, and I thank you so much for, for speaking with us. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you join me next time when my guest will be Ulrich Plass, and we'll be discussing his book, Language and History, in Theodore W. Dorno's Notes to Literature. <laughs>